Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking time to listen to our latest sermon, a sermon about the passion of Jesus. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to participate in our Holy Week events. With Ash Wednesday behind us and Lent upon us, it means that Holy Week will be here soon. If you don't know what Holy Week is, it is the week that Christians remember, the final week of Jesus' earthly life. I read it like this somewhere. Holy Week honors the week that changed the world. It begins with Palm Sunday and concludes at Easter. Our church has four important events happening in observance of Holy Week and the works of Jesus it remembers. We'd like you to be a part of all of them. The events are on Palm Sunday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and of course, Easter. All of these events will look different, but I believe each will be valuable expressions of worship and meaningful to your souls. You can participate in our Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter gatherings in person or online. If you're in our area, we'd love for that to be in person. Monday Thursday is an online-only event. I'm not going to explain each of these events here, but instead I want to tell you to go to wilsonville.church slash holyweek. Once you're there, click on the images to learn about the events. Again, it is wilsonville.church slash Holy Week. I want to make a special note about Easter. I'm excited about it. It's the first Easter that will feel normal in three years. Can you believe that? We desperately want to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus with you, and so consider this your invitation to join us. Also, I want you to know that we have an Easter basket filled with some pretty cool stuff for the first 25 people that let us know they are going to attend our Easter service. You can do that by going to wilsonville.church slash Easter. That is all I need to let you know right now. But again, make sure you go to wilsonville.church slash Holy Week. I hope you'll do it right now if you can, because I really do want to celebrate Jesus and the final week of his life with you. Again, thanks for listening. I hope that this sermon helps you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. As we finish uh, today, we are going to really be focused on, on the cross and on the gracious gift of Jesus. And I'll cut right to the chase because I think at the heart of this passage is these two simple ideas. Jesus is the King of Kings and Jesus died for you. Jesus is the King of Kings and Jesus died for you. And I think the reality for, for all of us is that if we don't hold both of these things together, if we don't remember that Jesus is king or we don't remember that Jesus died for us, then we'll never really understand the grace of God. And the more fully we understand these two things, that Jesus is king and that he died for us, the more fully we will grasp, understand, take hold of God's grace for us. And Here's how our section starts today. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. So far in this series, we've seen two things, two big events. One, Jesus was 
betrayed and then arrested. And then the second event was that Jesus was tried. In the first event, we saw that, that, that John, the author of John, wanted us to see that even, even in his betrayal and arrest, Jesus was still magnificent. He still was the son of God. And then in the, the second section, as Jesus is tried, he clearly wants us to see that Jesus is innocent. And for us to remember, to know, to understand that Jesus did not deserve what he was suffering on our behalf. And in some ways, these two things come together today. And it begins with the author of John telling us that Jesus carried his own cross. Now, in the other gospels, if you've read the New Testament, you may know this. There's a guy named Simon, Simon of Cyrene, it tells us, that actually helps Jesus carry his cross. And so some would come to this passage and be like, well, he didn't carry his own cross the whole time, but that is not important to John at all here. Uh, for John to pause and talk about this Simon character for a minute carrying Jesus' cross would be to distract from what is his key theme, his key message. And what he does here is he reminds us that Jesus is no helpless victim. The language of John that he's just bringing up, Jesus carried his own cross, is meant to stay on theme for this author. He wants you to understand that this isn't like just something that's happening to Jesus. This is something that Jesus is choosing to do. Jesus is going through with the plan, with the mission to be obedient to the Father and to die for our sins. Now, this is just a point of interest for you, for me as much as for you. Uh, Calvary, you know, we sing that. We like That's a word that gets used in Christian circles. Not as much as it used to in like the 50s, uh, but Calvary comes from the Latin translation of Golgotha. I didn't know that before this week. I felt like I should have known that. Maybe I was told that once in a class, but I was on my computer or something, not paying attention. Uh, but that is where we get the word Calvary. And now back to the main points. The, the place is uncertain. Uh, there's a couple of different ideas about where this place is, Golgotha. But the thing that is clear is the action, that Jesus is crucified. Now, what's striking here is the same thing that was striking in the passage we looked at last week. The author's utter lack of emotion or attempt to make you feel emotional. He uses a singular word, crucifixion, to describe something that was so utterly horrific. Uh, It was so horrific, in fact, that No Roman citizen could be crucified without the sanction of the emperor. Like you had to go to the very head honcho, the president, the king, in order for a Roman citizen to be crucified because it was just frankly so bad. It was not only a terrible physical death, but it was associated, everybody knew this, with shame and horror and embarrassment. Like they were trying to ridicule the person that they were also trying to torture and kill. Uh, The punished were beaten so badly that they were just weak and you know like for Jesus like he has to have help carrying that cross and then they were nailed to the cross the nails were driven through the the ankles the ankles and the wrists and and then they would be put up on this cross beam and hung you know on a piece of wood and uh and and one thing that I, I read this week that maybe is underrated for us as we think about this 
terrible event that Jesus underwent is, is that they would be out in this hot sun for hours. And, uh, and I always, this is, I know this is weird, but I only look at this this time of year, but I keep Jerusalem on my weather app. Uh, and, and I look at it as like we lead up to Easter because we have so many of the events and it's, you know, similar time of year. And I just think like, oh, when Jesus was out in the garden, it, you know, may have been 72 degrees or whatever. And, and right now it's reaching the mid 80s in Jerusalem. And so if that was true at the year that Jesus died, then you think about these people being crucified just on this cross, having been beaten terribly, bleeding from their wrists and their ankles and and now dealing with you know, the sun and, and the heat that it produces. Uh, so in order for the person to breathe on this cross, they had to push up with their legs. They'd put a little piece of wood actually under them uh, in order that the person could live longer. This is the type of torture that, that we're getting at here with these Roman people. They wanted, the, they wanted the sufferer to live longer because they wanted to punish them more fully for the thing that they had done wrong, for the crime that they had committed. And, and, and this is why they put this like little seat and so that they could kind of push up and, and continue to breathe because if they didn't do that, then they would suffocate far sooner than the Romans wanted them to suffer. And, and so here, I just, I mean, for us, and we'll, we'll do this, we'll, we'll hopefully connect on some emotional level on Good Friday. But, but here I say all that because it's an easy thing to do. I think it's an important thing for us to do sometimes as Christians to connect emotionally with this terrible suffering that Jesus, the King of Kings, who is innocent, the magnificent Son of God, is suffering on our behalf. But John, and frankly, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, make no attempt to describe, to lay out in detail, to make you feel. They have one concern, it seems, and one concern only. They have in mind the death of Jesus for sinners. For them, this is not something that you need to be emotional about. It's something that you need to believe for your salvation. Now, I make this case consistently that, that the physical suffering, in fact, the very thing that I think we can connect most emotionally with is actually not at the heart of Jesus' suffering in the first place. I mean, yes, it was horrific, and yes, we need to think about that and be touched by that and consider that, but, but behind the physical, the real suffering was the spiritual suffering that, that, Jesus, that Jesus suffered. We know that, that our sins were nailed to him in, on that cross. We know that from 1 Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. We know because we see this moment where he cries out in pain and suffering, but what does he cry out? He doesn't say this hurts so bad. He says, Father, why have you forsaken me? The Father has turned away from the Son and this is the greater torture, the spiritual suffering that Jesus faced on that cross. And the gospel writers, they want us to see first and foremost that the magnificent king, son of God, died for our sins. And that's what we believe as Christians. And, and, and sometimes, I mean, we should be emotional about that because it's an emotional thing, right? 
but always we should cling tightly to it and be moved by it in, in deep and profound ways. We all, like sheep, as it says in Scripture, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own ways, and God laid upon him in this moment that we're reading about now the iniquity of us all. God laid on Jesus the punishment that we all deserved. He suffered hell for us. And as, as John writes this for us, he, he doesn't care so much that we start crying. He cares far more that we believe that the King of Kings, the Son of God, the creator of all that has been created, chose to carry his own cross and die for our sins. There's incredible irony in the telling here in the Gospel of John of this moment, of this part of the passion story, because Jesus dies in the middle of two criminals. I think that's one of the most, just it's so profound to me that he would die in the middle of two criminals. And I grew up knowing that, you know, there's another gospel. It talks about this conversation he has from the cross with these criminals. But, but John just shows it to us. He died in the middle of two criminals. And there's an incredible irony there because he's perfect. He's sinless. He hasn't broken any of the laws that they're even claiming that he broke. And yet he is dying right next to, right next to people who absolutely deserve it. But even, even more, even more, even more. Not only is he dying in between criminals, he's dying for those criminals and for all of us who are criminals in our relationship to God. And so here, I mean, think of, and I'm going to come back to this over and over because I think it's, it's at the heart of what we're reading here. Think of, if you've been around, like what, what's been described about Jesus. And I'll hit on some of these points more later, but I mean, he's laid for, he spent, he spent the entirety of the gospel just demonstrating the greatness of this Jesus character, the perfection of this Jesus character, the magnificence of this Jesus character, the divinity of this Jesus character. And then he carries a cross, he's nailed to it, and he's placed between two criminals for our sins. The contrast between who Jesus is and what happens to Jesus in this passage, what Jesus allows for others to do to him in this passage, is really what I want you to think about today. I mean, we must, we must, even in the passion story, continue to remember the magnificence of Jesus. But then in this story, we must remember this horrific thing that is happening to him, where he's tortured, crucified, and then put in between two common criminals. And, and then like the author just starts to, he's going to bring this out more here because of what happens next in verses 19 through 22. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priest of the Jews 
protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. First, a side note, I think we're going to meet Pilate in heaven. I just think the way this story is told suggests that Pilate hated this moment, and he made the wrong choice, let's be clear, to condemn Jesus to death. But in some ways, he makes the choice that we've all made to reject God, to reject what is good and choose what is evil. And, and Pilate here, he does this thing that, that's so fascinating. He has King of the Jews written on this card, and, and history tells us that, that the crime that has been committed would be written on like these like boards, right? And, and then a, as the people are walking to their cross to die, they would either hang them or they'd have to carry them as, as they went. And, and then once they got to the place of their crucifixion, their execution, it would be placed above their heads. And Pilate writes this thing that, that's just so interesting, just king of the Jews. Now, it, it's pretty widely believed that he that he does this in part to get back at these Jewish leaders. And if you weren't here last week, you, you don't know this, but if you were, maybe you forgot that, that they, come to, they come to Pilate, the Jewish leaders, and they say, hey, this guy claimed to be a king. And Pilate completely over and over and over again says, this guy's innocent. Like, I have no reason to kill this guy. And they actually use a political tactic saying, you're no friend of the emperor if you don't kill him because he's claimed to be a king and to do that would go you know, against everything Romans stand for. And so they, they basically threaten him. We're going to tell on you to your boss, the king, if you don't do what we're asking you to do. And so here, in some ways, it seems that he is, he's just getting back at him. Like, oh, you want to play that game where I'm going to make him king of the Jews? But it sure seems, in the story of Pilate and his interactions with Jesus in this moment, that maybe he just believes at least a little that Jesus is actually king. But for the author of John he wants you again to see like this ironic moment that the king, the real king, and not only the king of the Jews, by the way, but notice that it's written up there in a bunch of languages, which is probably meant to represent that Jesus is not only the king of the Jews, that Jesus is king of all, that he is king of kings and Lord of lords. And he is the one who is being killed on a cross. I think it's important for us. I said last week that and I talked to you about how Jesus says that his kingdom is not of this world. But here's the reality that's meant to be seen in this moment. His kingdom is not of this world, but it is for this world, and it's for the whole world. Not only are Jews invited into the kingdom of God, we who are Gentiles, we who speak other languages, uh, are invited into the kingdom of God through through what is happening in this moment. Pilate puts up there this very true thing, whether he meant it, whether he kind of believed it, whether he was just doing it out of spite for all the Jewish leaders that had won a political battle with him in this trial, we don't know, but he hangs something true above Jesus, that he is the king. And John tells us that to say, look, the king is being killed for you. The king is being killed for you. The next two verses we read, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them. 
with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide who will get it by lot. This happened that scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. It was normal for the executioner to get the clothing of the ones that they were, I know, I, I, whoa, I see your grimaces in your face. Uh, and that's exact, I actually wrote the word disgusting down on my uh, sermon right here. It says disgusting, like that's a weird practice, right? Like, hey, I just whipped you and beat you and now I get your bloody clothes. Like that's a weird deal, but that's what happens here. Uh, interestingly, it was like split up. And so it, it probably went like this, like one guy got the belt and one guy got the sandals, one guy got his head covering. And, and then uh, another guy got the outer garment. And all that is left, as you just saw, was this inner garment, which is typical Jewish garb. That's what Jesus would have had and what he would have worn. And, and so they, they decide not to tear this thing. Uh, they decide to cast lots for it. I've always, I, I just, this is like one of the parts of this story. When we do Good Friday every year, like one of the parts of the story that emotionally gets me is the coldness of these soldiers. Uh, I, I'm struck, and I think I may have said this last week, I'm struck by how flippant the people around Jesus is uh, because, I mean, think again, the circumstance here. The King of Kings, the Son of God, Lord of Lords, the God-man is hanging on a cross, having been brutally beaten, scourged, beaten some more, crown of thorns put in his head, and then nailed up on this beam. And here these guys are. Well, that man's dying for him, right? I mean, right there. He is dying for their sins, everything they've ever done wrong. And they are gambling for his clothes. And, and frankly, I don't know. I don't know if John intends for us to connect it in this way. But for me, it's like I just would hope, I just would hope that that's not how we treat the crucifixion of Jesus. I would hope that's not how we treat the passion story of Jesus. I would hope that's not how we treat the gospel. But sometimes in modern Christianity, I think it is. I think we, we make the suffering of Jesus and what he's done for our sins about what we can gain, if you will. Like, the king of kings is dying for their sins and, and they're gambling for his clothes. And in our Christianity, it's like we, we look at the story of what Jesus has done for us and, and we figure out how we can gather the spoils from it. I think that that's a, a very sad reality for far too many Christians. You've come, if you're a Christian, to believe that the king of kings suffered and died for your sins. And far too often we look at God and we say, what can I gain from this? And it's such a staggering moment in these soldiers. Like how could they look at the cross and what this man is doing for them and just think about, you know, like who gets the inner garments? But I think we look at Jesus and we say, wow, it's so amazing you died for me. Now what else can you do for me? Don't be like them. But why does John tell us this? It's to fulfill prophecy. 
It's a big deal. Jesus was not surprised by his death. Anyone rightly understanding the Old Testament was not surprised by his death. Their Messiah, the one who was going to set things right for the Jews first, but for the whole world, he had to suffer and die. It was told about for centuries and centuries. The Messiah had come to set things right, but he had to do it through dying. One of the reasons it's easy for me to be a Christian is because of these prophecies. I just cannot fathom that thousands of years before a man came, that they would tell so many things so perfectly about what he would be about, what he would be like, and ultimately what he would do. It's easy, I think, at least for me, as I'm reading through the stories of Jesus' life, especially the passion stories, he's suffering and dying, to go, oh, it fulfilled prophecy, no big deal. But we should at least pause and go, this is crazy. That hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus even lived, an author would write down that when he died, they wouldn't tear his clothes. And here is a moment, it seems witnessed to by the guy writing about it, where his, they're like, hey, let's not rip up the fabric, but let's gamble for the clothes. That's staggering. That's amazing. And I thought about like, why would you rip the shirt? I thought about that. But then I was like, you know what? Like, I mean, because that's like kind of an obvious, like, well, you just gamble for it. But like fabric had to be much harder to come by, right? Like you didn't go to Walmart or go on Amazon and just buy stuff. Like fabric was probably a big deal. So it would have made sense to, to split up this garment. Like you had another piece of fabric to work with when you went home. Wife would have been happy with you. But they choose to gamble for it and it fulfills this incredible I mean, all of the prophecy to me is incredible, but it fulfills this prophecy written long, long before Jesus even lived. So then Jesus dies. And as he's dying, a couple of things uh, happen. He says a couple of things primarily. And uh, I actually preached on John 19, 25 through 30 in a series uh, just a couple of years ago. It was actually... Uh, I'll look back on this. It was the series I was preaching when uh, everything shut down. Uh, And so we did half of that uh, at Lowry Primary School, and the other half was filmed in uh, Grace Chapel's office. And uh, and so I did talk about these things, and, I, and so I, I would love for you, if you want something as you kind of finish the Lenten season uh, to, to do and to help you focus more fully on Jesus, uh, you can go to wilsonville.church slash seven sayings. Uh, I think that that series was valuable and important. I wish that we could have been together for all of it. Um, but I just, I want to hit a, a couple of uh, big points from that section without reading them to you today. The the first is that he looks down from the cross and he sees, you you may know this story, he sees his mother and then he sees the disciple whom he loves and, and he looks and he says, here is your son to his mother and here is your uh, mother to the disciple. And uh, what I said in that seven sayings uh, sermon series that uh, I preached that sermon, that sermon, the first time that we couldn't be together. And, and I said, Jesus doesn't care, doesn't just care about your eternity. He cares about your present reality. And I think that stands true today. I feel good about that point a couple of years later. Here is Jesus dying for the sins of the world. And so often we say, well, that gets me into heaven. But in this moment of such incredible thoughtfulness and love and mercy. He makes sure that his mother is 
taken care of. And I think it demonstrates or should demonstrate to each of us that while Jesus does care about our eternity and ultimately his death is for our eternity, he also, he, he cares about what we are dealing with right now and his passion story proves that to us. And then Jesus says he's thirsty and they lift up a jar of wine vinegar to his lips and after tasting it, he says, it is finished, and then it says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This, this word finished is a, it's a cry of victory, really. Jesus had come to fulfill a mission, and in that final breath, that mission was accomplished. It was the mission prophesied about long ago. It was the mission of coming to die so that you might have salvation, and he's gone through everything he has to go through, and he dies. In other words, in this moment, there is victory. There's victory. I think we can all connect to uh, achieving things, right? And sometimes those things seem <laughs> so far out, and, and we think, man, am I, ever, am I ever going to finish? Like, I mean, I think of education. It's one of those things, like, you start your college life, right? You're like four years, like this is never going to be over. And then on graduation, you celebrate. Why do you celebrate? Because you finished. And Jesus, as he says, it is finished, is declaring, I've accomplished what I came to accomplish. The offer of salvation is complete. The offer of salvation is complete. And so then we read, now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may believe. These things happen so the scripture will be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. The, the Romans would smash the legs of people being crucified in order to speed up their deaths, and uh, that would prevent them from pushing up to breathe, as I talked about earlier. And uh, here, uh, the Jewish people wanted that done because it was Passover, and Jesus is, it's, it's crazy, like he's dying as the Passover lamb. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, but in this moment, they're so concerned with celebrating this tradition that, that they just want to speed up his death and get these bodies buried. And, and so the Romans oblige, and they break a couple legs, and they don't do Jesus because he's already dead and he probably died faster because he's been, you know, scourged and double beaten and he's been through, you know, more than these other guys in a normal crucifixion. But then there's this interesting note about a, a soldier coming and, um, and, and piercing Jesus and the blood and the water flow out 
from his body. And uh, as I was researching, like the, uh, people started explaining exactly what this was, and I'm not wired to be like a nurse, so I just gave up on that really quickly. And so I don't need to know why the blood and water. I just need to know what this is in here for. Like that's what I need to know about. And it's an interesting note because it, it's like makes really clear. I want I want you to I want you to know that I've I've witnessed this, or at least the language is a little fuzzy. At least I talked to somebody who witnessed this moment. I think at the heart of it is simply this. The author here wants you to know that Jesus was dead. Jesus was dead. I mean, for one, that's important for combating some heresies, heresies about Jesus not being fully human, Jesus' body and soul getting all weird, and there's heresies out there that this combats. It's important. It's also important in regards to the resurrection. Uh, because if Jesus wasn't dead, then he didn't come back from the dead. And, uh, and, and he just was, you know, temporarily passed out or whatever it might be. And so this is important for that fact. Uh, but perhaps mostly, mostly, if you look at all the language of John uh, about blood and about water, you can come to this conclusion that what John wants you to see here is first that Jesus is dead, but also that Jesus is dead in order that you might live. And that is the big idea here. I think that's why John moves us to that moment in the passion story of Jesus. He, he is holding up, I mean, I, I, don't, I can't make this much more clear, I know, but I'm gonna keep saying it. Like He's holding up this incredible picture of Jesus. This is the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And he died. But he didn't just die. He died so that you can live. I want to back up just a minute because, and I've, I've hinted at this, but I, I think it's important that we that, that we not look at this in a vacuum. And because because we've been studying all the way through the Book of John, and one of the great things about us moving through books like this is is we can start to see the bigger picture of of what authors are trying to say to us in these biblical books. And in the Gospel of John, if you've been around, you've seen this magnificent Jesus. Like half the book or more is about demonstrating to you how incredible Jesus is. He starts with Jesus being the uncreated creator of all that has been created. And he could have stopped right there. You make that claim about Jesus, that's a big, big deal. But he says he's the son of God, God in human form that he is the one who did undeniable miracles, miracles that are not possible with, you know, some magic or whatever it might be, undeniable, real, supernatural miracles. He was the one who taught in a way that people had never heard and taught so powerfully that, that every person seemingly who heard him speak just had a decision to make. Am I with this guy or am I gonna reject this guy? He's the Messiah, he's the King of Jews, and he's the King of Kings. He lays all that out, and then he gives one final Last Supper speech, and then he demonstrates to us that Jesus was betrayed, arrested, tried, condemned, tortured, and killed. The uncreated 
creator of all that has been created, the one who, who has life within himself, the one in, from whom you can find life, the only place that you can find life that will last for eternity, the source of that is dead in this moment. He's been killed. And he allowed for it to happen so that you might have life. I've said throughout the series that the author is writing, it said, I didn't make this up, it's in John 20, 31, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life. I have life. And John lays forth this incredible picture of Jesus and then says, here he is, but he had to do something so that you might have that life. He had to be killed. And my hope for you, if you've been on the fence about following this Jesus guy, like these two truths, they're the thing. They're the thing that compelled me to follow him. Like he is great. <laughs> he is perfect. He is marvelous. He is magnificent. And he suffered and died for me. If you're on the fence about following him, I would say, wow, like get off the fence and just, just, just follow him. Give your life to him because in him is life and life abundant, as he says. Like just follow Jesus. Become a Christian. Like, like if, if, you, just, if you believe that Jesus is, is the son of God, the king of kings, the Messiah, and he chose to die for you so that you might have life, like why not just give yourself to him, get that life, and then follow him with everything you are. But if you're a Christian, like, like whether you're emotional or not about this, because I said it's not told in an emotional way, right? Like whether you're emotional about it or not, you should always be passionate about it. Like I think it's easy for us, I think it's really easy for us who are Christians to like be driven by our emotions. And sometimes we can feel excited about Jesus. And in those moments, we're like, yeah, I'm all in on this Jesus thing. But when we don't feel it, then we're not. But here, like this demands all of your life, no matter how you feel. Like he's not trying to tell you like, hey, go, be, go have a cry fest because Jesus died for your sins. He's trying to say, follow this Jesus because he is God and he died for you. And I would say that all of us who are Christians, who already chose to follow this Jesus at some point, that we would, that we would take away our feelings and just say, every day I'll live for you because you came to die for me. Let me pray that those two things would happen. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for dying for my sins. Lord, you know there's, there's so many of them, Lord, yet when I was just a sinner, you gave your life for this ungodly soul, Lord. And you not only did it for me, but you did it for every person in this world, God, every person that lives today, every person who has lived, every person who will live. You suffered the consequence of their sin by, by suffering and dying on their 
behalf. And Lord, you know that I want. I mean, one of the reasons I do this week in and week out, one of the reasons, the main reason that I became a pastor, God, is because I want more people to believe that the Son of God died for their sins. And I pray, God, even as I finish this sermon, that you would whisper, whisper into the souls, the hearts, the minds of people who, who are not Christians and just just say to them, call them to you, God. Call them into a relationship with you. And I pray that they would be obedient to that calling, Lord. And for those of us who are Christians, let us never waver in our passionate service of you. Let us follow hard after you. Give us one pure and holy passion, Lord, and let it not be driven by our emotions because sometimes we will feel sadness that you died for us. And other times we'll feel excitement and our, our feelings are not trustworthy, God. But I believe this story is in part because it fulfilled so many prophecies that the Son of God gave his life for us. And so I pray, God, that as I called people to do, we would live the entirety of our lives for you. Jesus, thank you for what you did. Let it compel us, God, to live in response. I pray these things in your holy name. Amen.